my title for this last message is called Never Enough. Never Enough. In 1950, the average square foot home was 983 square feet with 3.37 people living in it. You know how numbers go, 0.37. In fact, I remember, and I still remember, a home that's here in Collegedale, right across from the academy, not exactly straight across, because the middle school's there now, but just down the road a little bit further, there's a brick house that's there. It doesn't look too different from something like this. And my Bible teacher at College Hill Academy said that house used to be a doctor's, very prominent doctor's house. And it was a very nice house. Uh, it had indoor plumbing. It had, I think he was talking, I haven't been in the house, but I think I remember him saying that the master bedroom had its own bathroom. Yeah. In 2009, the average square foot Uh, of the house that Americans live in is 2,700 square feet. This one in the picture, of course, is a little bit larger with with only 2.57 occupants, so a little bit less. So in 59 years, the average American home grew by 175%, while the average family size shrunk by 24%. Why do you suppose that is? One comedian made his observation as to why. He started by asking, do you have a place to put your stuff? That is all our house is, right? A place for your stuff. If you didn't have much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. Your house is a pile of stuff with a cover on it. In fact, it is a place to keep your stuff while you go out to get more stuff. When you fly in an airplane, you see everyone's neat piles of stuff. And when you leave your house and you have to lock up your stuff, and you don't want anyone to take some of your stuff because they always take the good stuff. Sometimes you have to move and get a bigger house. Why? Because you have too much stuff. Sometimes we even put stuff in storage. Other times we move in with all of our stuff And the house still feels empty. So what do you do? You go out and buy more stuff to fill the house. And you get the idea. So today I want to talk a little bit about this idea of your stuff, my stuff. Is it wrong to have stuff? And where should we put our stuff? Anyway... Throughout the Bible, there is this theme. In fact, there's a theme that we see in many ways and avenues throughout Scripture. It's a theme of sacrifice. We see a character of sacrifice. When Abraham was willing to put all on the altar and to give what was dearest to him, his son, his future. Jesus calls us to be willing to sacrifice relationships, how we must be willing to put God above father and mother and sister and brother. We have examples of physical sacrifice. Paul and Silas in a dungeon, suffering physically for Christ, but in spite of that, they're found singing, praying and trusting God in the midst of their physical sacrifice in that inner dungeon. No windows, an awful stench, 
in chains, contorted, on a floor that is not comfortable, yet they're singing. We see the sacrifice of God's Son. How Jesus gave his all for you and for me. How he emptied himself. We can see other places that we need to sacrifice this idea of self-reliance. Remember the story of the widow and her two mites? It's all she had. Not knowing how she would meet her own needs, but trusting God with everything. We see in Scripture the sacrifice of means and pleasures. More than 2,000 references in the Bible to money. Two-thirds of Jesus' parables dealt with money management and possession. And so along those lines, money is something that God wants us to pay attention to. And interestingly enough, money is one of those things that no matter how much you have, no matter how much I have, we never can seem to have enough. So I want to look, if you brought your Bibles, to some very practical advice Jesus gave to those that were primarily poor. Now I imagine there was a little bit of everyone in the crowd... But uh, I want to turn, if you will, to, there it goes, it's a little slow, Matthew chapter 6, and we'll read beginning in verse 24. This is taken from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, beginning verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or wealth, or money. Continuing on, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap, neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Verse 31, therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And here's one of my favorite lines of scripture, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. 
Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you hear God speaking to you in those words, Southern students? Do not worry about your grades. Don't worry about that test. Don't worry about your school bill. I mean, yes, there is a part for us to do. We're supposed to work, and there's plenty of verses that that talk about all those things, and we could look at those. But more often than not, we just tend to worry. We can be worriers. And if there's nothing to worry about, we're worried that we should be worried, but we're not. You can call it worry, you can call it stress, you can call it a host of things. But if we're truly trusting in God as a friend well-known, do we need to worry? If we're putting Him first in our life, do I need to stress? If the Lord wants me to have it, I'll have it. If He doesn't want me to have it, I won't. But ultimately, I want my life to be in the center of His will. And as long as that's where I am, I don't need to worry. Somebody here is worried about, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find the one. And I'm supposed to be graduating soon. I only have so many semesters left. And I've been looking. Don't worry. You're far better off single for life than to be married to the wrong one. God has a plan. I remember theology majors and the conferences would come and interview. That's where they decide who's going to get what job. And the first conference that comes, if they don't get a job offer, they are just stressed out and they're worried. What if it's God's will and plan for you to be hired by the last conference that comes? And for those of you that aren't theology majors, what if it's the last interview you have that that's the one that God wants you to have? And for some reason, our humanists think, oh, that finally somebody accepted me. And God's saying, no, that's where I want you to be all along. And we worry. And this idea, you can't serve two masters. You can either serve God or you can serve money, but you can't do both. We all say the same thing to that verse, too. I understand the principle, but I'm the exception to the rule. I can serve God and have plenty of money, okay? I will be just fine. I'll make sure to tithe and do all these things and be generous. I can have all my stuff and still love God supremely, but just don't take away my stuff. I think of a hurricane years ago, I think it was Hurricane Matthew, and somebody was saying, sir, why don't you evacuate? He says, I have to take care of my stuff. Really? Life or death, I choose stuff. I want to go to another verse uh, still in Matthew, but now we're going to go to chapter 19. And this audience... I mean, there's other people listening, but primarily he's talking to a rich, young ruler. Somebody who has lots of stuff. What is his counsel for him? So if you have your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 19, 
beginning verse 16. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? Good teacher, he's not really accepting him as God or Lord or anything else, but you're a good teacher. What good things shall I do to have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God which is the title he didn't give him. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. You shall not steal. That's the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That's the ninth commandment. So what are we expecting to come? Tenth commandment. Which is really what he needs to hear. Thou shalt not, what is it? Covet. He's got lots of stuff. But Jesus does a, a switch. He says, and you shall love your neighbor. No, sorry. Honor your father and your mother. That's the fifth. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a Levitical summation. He leaves out the covet. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? He has this sense he's still missing something. And he would be correct. So he's coming to Jesus. He's asking the questions. Jesus gives a nice answer. He continues to ask. And so, Jesus, this is your chance. Let him have it. Well, I'm glad you asked. For one, you're prideful. You're the youngest president in the history of the company, and, that, and, and because of that, or as a result of that, or, or we've observed that you're also obnoxious and arrogant and rude, you have an insatiable desire for stuff, and you always trust your money instead of God. You are intoxicated with the cares of this life. And people say, whoo, give it to him, Jesus. Hadn't given me a raise in years. He's the one. But Jesus doesn't do that. Rather, he's trying to get him to think, and he's seeking after his soul. And so in verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure where? In heaven. And come and follow me. It reminds me of the other verses, I think it's, uh, back there in Matthew chapter 6, store your treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. When we invest in people, when we invest in spiritual things, we invest in character things, nobody can take that away. But my stuff, have you ever known somebody that has so much stuff they can't keep up the maintenance of everything? They have the boat, it doesn't run. They have the house, it needs a paint job, it need, you know, the, the roof is falling apart. They have another property somewhere else, and it's falling apart. I mean, it was brand new just a few years ago, but because of no maintenance. And so he's trying to get him to think. And then he says, come and follow me. This is the same verbiage that he gives to the disciples, right? He's virtually saying, if you do this, you can come and be a disciple of mine. Instead of 12, we're going to have 13. 
instead of sell your nets and all the rest. You know, that was the beginning of a good business. But now to the businessmen. Same principle, same idea. Give up all and come and follow me. But verse 22, when the young man heard that saying, he went away how? Sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. Too much stuff. To the poor, Jesus says, I'll give you all that you need. To the rich, Jesus says, I will give you just what you need. God's comments to us about money have very little to do with money itself. It's not really the amount. Money is relative. You go to most places in the world, you are rich. Did you have more than one meal today? So it's not so much about the amount. It's not about the 401k or the hedge funds or the annuities. God is not concerned with our cash. He is concerned with our character. The reality is our life on this earth is just a dot. On the line of eternity. Right? So imagine a period on a line that goes, if I had a Sharpie right here, and I gave it to one of you, and you ran it down the carpet. I wouldn't advise that. You run it down the carpet, and it would be best if it was a straight line. But anyway, we go down the stairs. We go across campus. We go through the other side of, of Talge Hall. We go out past the music building, and we're all the way at the duck pond. Is there any duck pond anymore? It's more like a marsh. That's a long line. And then I'm going to take my, an, another Sharpie, and I'm just going to put, just, excuse me, just a tiny little dot, right? Oh, I can't yet know it's there. That's my life. That's your life. That's the dot. From here to the marsh is eternity. Oh, wait, no, it's not. It goes past that. I don't even know what direction that is. I'm just assuming that the, the Atlantic is on the other side. But which direction? Does anybody know? Which is north? That's north. This is south. Okay, so we're going all the way up to the North Pole. We're going to go all the way down the other side, back around from here. And we're still just getting started. But your life is still just this little dot. Yet we put everything into and cram and, and see how we can have the most exciting little tiny dot we can have. Did you see my dot? Did you see what I got to live in in my dot? What I drove on my dot. Dude, it's a dot. Right? And he's trying to get our eyes off of the dot to the line that stretches on for eternity. We probably wouldn't just circle the globe. We'd have to go out past, anyway, solar system, all the rest. So both the poor and the rich young ruler have the same problem. They're focused on the dot instead of the line. Did you know that financial stress is the top stressor in the United States? 
And if you think it is tied with only those that make, I don't know, 30000 or less, or 50000 or less, or 100000 or less, you can forget about it. It's all the way through. And sometimes the more you have, the more stress you have, because the more things you're responsible for, the more things you have that can go wrong. I remember the old, there's a country song that says, uh, all I got is this beat-up leather bag, and everything I own just fills up half. I'm not recommending the song. I don't know what else it says. It's been a long time since I heard the song. But there's something nice about all I have is this tiny little thing, and if you take it, you know, I'll probably be okay. Simplicity. Philippians 4.12, I know what it is to be in need, Paul says. I know what it is to have plenty. There's both groups again. I've learned the secret of being what? Content. Why is this a secret? I don't know. Nobody seems to know about it. Because the reality is I can be in need and I'm not content. I'm always wanting, 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 wanting. I can have plenty and I can still always be wanting, 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 wanting. It doesn't matter. But Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in every... I'm having trouble with the thing today. I'm sorry. Content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He's learned the secret and it's to be Content. The problem is we've forgotten how to be content. We're not content with our cars, our homes, our jobs. We're not content with the status of our bank accounts. The list just goes on, doesn't it? We're not content with our phones. I mean, it was a really good phone like last month, and then they came out with another one. The camera's two times as good. Whatever. I think of Isaiah 26, 3. I will keep thee in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Not worrying, not stressed. I think of another verse. Oh, that was the verse I just said. How many of you have been on a short-term mission trip to a third world country? Have you ever been struck with the fact that when you get there, these people have virtually nothing? I mean, literally. They have very little, if anything. This keep pulling back and yanking up. I'm going to try to just pull a bunch out, so don't let that distract you. They have almost nothing. Living on dirt floors, thatched roofs, the whole thing, but they're happy. They enjoy life. They're smiling. They're laughing. They're interacting. They're happy. And after a few weeks of that, and then you come home to good old America where everybody has everything. And nobody's happy. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever experienced that? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Going back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Just a few verses down from where we were. And my God will meet how much of your needs? Most of them. Some of them. A few of them. Don't push it. All. 
What do you think all means? What if we were to go back to the Greek? What if we dissected it? Do we need to do that? Or does all just mean all? So what does this verse mean? I think it means exactly what it says. Don't try and philosophize it or whatever it is. Just claim it, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, it doesn't say all your wants. I have a lot of wants. You probably do, too. If God thinks I need them, he'll give them to me. If not, then I should be okay. The reality is he has supplied thus far many of my needs and many of my wants. The problem is when I talk to young people, oftentimes, whether they're in high school or college, what are you going to do, what's your major, or that type of thing, or what, do you, what are you going to major when you go to college, whatever. The answer often, not always, but often will come back, well, I've th- been thinking, I really want to do this. And I say, okay, tell me why you want to do that. And it's not, well, that's just my passion. I just love it. I love the interaction with people. I just, I'm just so into it, and I, I just lose track of time. No, oftentimes the response is, well, it makes really good money, and I like the hours, and so that's what I've decided I'm going to do. And I just, you know, I came from a family that maybe didn't have that much money, or, you know, let's say something like this, but I just want to be comfortable. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Don't point any fingers. And I'm wondering and thinking to myself, is that the reason to choose a career so I have enough money to be comfortable? And how much of enough is enough? I think about that parable of that fisherman that's on the, the beach. I was a student missionary in Ponape out in Micronesia, and so I s- somewhat resonate to this. He's sitting on the beach, and he's just relaxing. He went out early in the morning. He got enough fish he needed just for the day, and so he's had his breakfast, a little rice, some fish, and all of that, and now he's just relaxing in his hammock. And an entrepreneur comes up. Maybe he's on vacation or something, and he says, Hey, hey, hey what are you doing sleeping? Hey, man, I'm enjoying the day. He says, yeah, but where did you get that fish? Oh, there's a special place right over there. Well, let's go. Let's get some more fish. I don't need to get more fish. I'm full. Yes, you do. Why? Because if you get more fish and you have more than you need, you can go to the market, you can sell it, and they'll give you money in exchange for the fish. Why would I do that? Why would you do that? Because money is a good thing. The more money you get, the more you can buy stuff with it. But I already have everything. No, 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 you don't. You had to live in this little shanty on the beach. I tell you what, if you get this business going and you can get a bunch of fish coming and then you can hire other people, they'll actually do the fishing for you. You won't even have to fish and the money will keep coming in. And as the money grows, you can have other branches on other islands and it can get bigger and bigger and bigger until you might have 50, 100, 1,000 people working for you. Why, why would I want 50 or 1,000 people working for, you, for me? And he says, oh, because then you have the life. 
You can do whatever you want all day long. You can live on the beach. You can take a nap if you want to. You can live stress-free. He says, I already got that. Why do I want to go through all that mess? Proverbs 38 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Smartest man. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Isn't that an interesting verse? What's the principle? Lord, just give me enough for what I need. If I have too much, it's dangerous. If I have too little, it could be dangerous. Just give me my portion. Give me my cup. And help me to learn the secret to be content. I would love it if every individual I asked, and I'm not trying to be judgmental. Everybody's in a different place. I'm just challenging you. Just look inward. Don't don't look anywhere else. But I would love it if when I ask people, or when people ask me even, if my answer to things, well, you know, what's your major going to be, or this or that, I just, I feel like the Lord is calling me to do this, or He's calling me to do that. And I feel like I could serve Him best in this way, or in that way. Being confident that God will call you. He has a plan for you. And I'm not trying to make an appeal that everybody needs to rush over to the theology department and become a pastor. You ever heard of too many cooks in the kitchen? I mean, you don't want too many pastors in one church. It can be problematic. But we need doctors that are mission-minded. We need business people that are mission-minded. We need nurses that are mission-minded. We need mechanics that are mission-minded. We need aviators that are mission-minded. I mean, the list is inexhaustible. But the key is, I want to be in something that God can use for His honor and His glory, not just so I can get stuff and dance around on my little dot. Second Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up in that moment. Where are the keys to my Maserati? Where, ha, who's got covering my yacht? Who's doing this other thing over here? Are you going to care about any of that? Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Do you believe Jesus is coming soon? I believe he's coming soon. Does that impact how I live my life today? It should impact how I live my life today. Because the reality is when that moment comes, so many things I strive for, so many things I stress about, so many things I think I have to have that aren't really needs, and if I just trust God, He would provide them for me in His time anyway, at this point in history, it's not going to matter. I mean, people on their deathbed rarely say, you know, I wish I had a, a faster car or a bigger house. Or, they don't say those things. And when Jesus comes, it's going to be the same way. 
And what a privilege to not only be looking for, but hastening the coming of the day of God. Wow. To be part of something bigger than just me and the hoarding of my stuff. A couple of quotes. Yeah, I think I went too fast. Here's Acts of the Apostles, page 600. Christ has given to the church a sacred charge. Every member should be a channel through which God can communicate to the world the treasures of his grace, the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the sacred charge. And you can do it anywhere. Say, Lord, how can I communicate to the world? There are places as a pastor I can't get into. There are people that I cannot communicate with, I can't talk with. I meet them, you know, often enough. What do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Have a nice day. But you, under the guise of something else, but with the same mission, can still share the treasures of His grace. How do you do that? Well... You listen to all of their woes, and after so many days of listening to their woes, you can just build a mansion next to their shack. What do I mean? Well, they have this belief system that's kind of a shack, and you just build up, well, you know, for me, when I find myself in that situation, or for me, when I'm overwhelmed, or for me, when I, you know, I'm just worn out, I have this beautiful thing called the Sabbath. I believe that God gave us, and this is how I, I, what I do on that day, and how I enjoy it, and it just revives me, it refreshes me, it's such a blessing to me. That's building a mansion next to their shack. They're working every Saturday, boom, 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 seven days a week, whatever, wearing themselves out. So wait, there's a a thing in the Bible that talks about taking a Sabbath? Yeah, it's the best day of the week. I love it. I'd like to know more about that. Sure, I'd be happy to tell you any time. Anyway, keep rolling here. Same page, Acts the Apostle 600. There is nothing that the world needs so much as the manifestation through humanity of the Savior's love. All heaven is waiting for men and women through whom God can reveal the power of Christ. That's a powerful quote, but it's also kind of sad. All heaven is there waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for us to be willing to reveal the power of Jesus Christ. They're waiting to empower us, to enable us. How often do we leave them just waiting? Well, I got to get more stuff. On my way to the store for stuff. Counting all my stuff. And they're waiting. Long has God waited for the spirit of service to take possession of the whole church. Does it say for all pastors? All teachers? All missionaries? No, it says the whole church. So that everyone shall be working for him according to his ability. We all have different abilities. And God calls us according to our abilities to do and be faithful in that area. I already mentioned I was a student missionary. So we're sitting there in chapel in Ponape, and Mr. B goes up there and starts talking about the body and how every part of the body is important and valid and, and needed and all these things. And he talks about... Did I share this last time? Maybe I did. I shouldn't probably share it twice. 
he talks about the bowels of the body. And I think he used a word in Pohnpeian that referred to the buttocks. And I'm thinking, oh my, where is he going with this? This does not sound like a spiritual application that needs to be made. That's what you're thinking right now. That's probably what my wife is thinking. She thinks that all the time. Where, what, what is he doing? And he said every part of the body is important. And you as freshmen in here, you think that you're not important. Everybody makes fun of the freshmen and they beat up on the freshmen and everything about the freshmen. And they say, oh, the freshmen are just the, you know. And he says, but what happens when the stops working properly? And by that he meant, you know, and you got it, right? He says, the whole body suffers. You're laughing because you've suffered. <laughs> Lord have mercy, you've suffered. And we're all quick to think, if I can't do this, if I can't do that, if I can't do some flashy thing and some glittery whatever, then I'm not important. Take that thought out of your mind. Every part of the body is important. And when every part is working and functioning, the body is beautiful. It doesn't matter what we lose. When we lose it, we say, I didn't realize how much I used my fingernail on just this one finger until it's gone. I didn't realize how much I used my thumb on my right hand until it was broken. I didn't realize. You get the idea. Acts the Apostles, page 111. When the members of the church of God do their appointed work in the, needing, in the needy fields at home and abroad, in fulfillment of the gospel commission, the whole world will soon be warned and the Lord Jesus will return to this earth with power and great glory. That's when everybody jumps in and says, I'm going to do my part. And it's possible that the Lord may call you to make a bunch of money to help finance the work. But I don't think it's possible he's calling you to do that at the loss of your own soul. I think it's possible for you to make a lot of money. Some people are just gifted. Whatever they touch, bing, it just turns to gold. And it, maybe God gave you that gift. Fine, bing, turn it to gold, sell it on Marketplace and give it to missions. And you'll be blessed. I got to work with an individual uh, in one of my church districts. This guy made a ridiculous amount of money. He probably made more money in a day. I'm confident he did than I did in a month. In fact, he probably made three or four times in a day what I made in a month. And he had so much fun giving it away, canceling people's debts, having a Bible study in his doctor's office. I mean, people know when you have money and means, but you're taking time to get to know whoever wants to come to your doctor's office for a Bible study? It was powerful. I saw lives changed month after month after month. I mean, he had it every week, but Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. I don't know we need to spend time on this. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. One goes for the stuff, one goes for the city. 
In fact, Abraham gave him the choice, but it says, By faith Abraham dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Both of them were wealthy. Both of them from the same family. Both of them in similar situations. Their herds got too big, and Abraham was really the leader. Lot was more the follower, and Abraham turns to Lot, and he says, we're too big to coexist, so we need to part ways. You choose. Do you want to go this way or that way? It really should have been Abraham's choice, but he's gracious. And Lot looks over here, and he says, that looks beautiful. I'm going to go that way. And he settles in. He gets cozy. He sets up his, establishes all of his stuff. Abraham, Father Abraham, on the other hand, he continues to live in a tent. Can't wait to interview his wife someday. How is it like for so long to live in a tent? And over and over and over again, Abraham must have kept repeating this. Honey, this is not, this world's not our home. We're just passing through. We're waiting for the real deal in heaven. Tom Mahoynahan, it's cutting off my words here. I think it's Mahoynahan. He bought a little pizza store in Detroit. It's called Dominic's in 1960. He didn't have enough money, so he got his brother to go in with him. Some of you can relate. After a year or so, his brother didn't want to continue, so Tom bought out his brother by giving him a Volkswagen Beetle. Probably was a piece of junk anyway. There's a picture of the Beetle and the Dominic's. <clears throat> By 1965, he had purchased two other pizzerias and then changed the name to Domino's and decided to deliver pizza. His first three stores are represented by the three dots. To make a long story short, Domino's became the largest home delivery pizza business in the world. Tom, as a result, was a very wealthy man. Oh, there's the three dots, sorry. There's the delivery. Anyway, he got so wealthy, he owned the Detroit Tigers baseball team at one point. Granted, they never did very well, but anyway. <laughs> he owned a helicopter to take him to the game so he didn't have to fight traffic. I mean, of, of all luxuries, a hel- I mean, a helicopter. This is incredible, right? Then he owned a big car collection, and he had warehouses full of cars. Didn't even have enough to buy this little pizzeria initially. One was a 1931 Bugatti Royale, only five in the world that are running, I'm told. He paid $11 million for that one car. He had a big yacht, but he rarely had time to enjoy it. But then there was that one day he started thinking, if I continue going down this road that I'm on, where will it lead? So he decided to take one of his business friend's offer up, and he went to a Bible study. And he involved himself each week in this early morning Bible study and prayer group. And one day it was his turn to read the passage for the day. Keep in mind, yacht, helicopter, car collection, owner of the Detroit Tigers. Here's the verse that he 
you know, I don't think anybody asked him to read it. They did, he knew it was just part of the sequence. And here, here it landed. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He says, when I read that, I thought Jesus put that verse in the Bible just for me. So he started liquidating his assets. Sell the car. Sell the cars. Sell the extra homes. Sell the yacht. He started giving his money to Christian charities. He says, when I first started doing this, my wife thought I had lost my mind. But now we're both in this together, realizing that there is nothing more important than eternal life. He finally got it, that it's about the line and not the dot. And now, well, in 1998, he sold his Domino's pizza for $1 billion in cash. Mercy. But now he is full-time in ministry work. And he says he's never been happier in his life. Isn't that often the case? It's just that mirage that we chase after for stuff, for stuff, for stuff. And then we get there and we think this is it. What was the verse we read early on? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, yes, I think that can be applied to life profession, but I think that can also be applied to every day. Here at school, going through the rigors of school, of tests and quizzes and projects and study groups and social relationships and drama and parents and school bills and work, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If it's really important, it will fall into place. So don't worry. But trust in God. So in summary, this is not the goal. This is the goal. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this afternoon it's a pretty simple concept, but in our humanness it's a challenging one to apply to our lives. And it's a principle that really requires that we apply it day after day after day, and it runs against the grain of this culture that is so saturated and obsessed and intoxicated with stuff. But I think even now, each of us has lived long enough to know that stuff does not bring happiness. Maybe in a short-lived way, 
there's some joy in this and that and the other thing. But true happiness really is true joy. The joy for what you provide, for what you offer, for what you give, and for what we can share. And when we're part of that, when we are able to share and witness for you, and yes, there'll be rejections all along the way, but when somebody gets it, when somebody accepts it, when somebody receives it, Lord, there's no greater joy in the universe. And so, Lord, I pray for these young entrepreneurs. I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you have a plan for each of them. I pray that their plan will not just be to get and acquire stuff on this dot of life, but that they will seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and trust that you will give us and provide for us exactly what we need. No more, no less. And that as we keep our eyes on you, we'll keep that heavenly perspective of eternity, of the line. For your honor and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.